Please turn with me in Scripture to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with him, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her, and the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of their infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. 
And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Then the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. But John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii and the other fifty. And when they had nothing which which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Well, tonight we consider Jesus' words to the people, the crowd, concerning John the Baptist there in Luke chapter 7. John had sent his disciples to Jesus. They had seen for themselves how that Jesus had fulfilled all the prophecies concerning the Messiah. It could not have been any plainer, any clearer. And there is a demonstration of the reality of who Jesus was. Now after they had left, Jesus has something to say about John. And one thing to keep in mind as we think about this is that this crowd, in this crowd, many of those people, perhaps most of those people, had gone out into the desert in the years beforehand during the time of John the Baptist. They'd heard him preach, they'd received his message, and they had been baptized by him. They had received that baptism of repentance that John was sent into the world to do. And he explains to them that John was the fulfillment of prophecy in Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. John was this forerunner, this prophet, preparing the way for Jesus himself. And Jesus says, 
Among those born of women, there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he doesn't stop there. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Because as great as John was, and he was great, as great as John was, he was just a forerunner of someone greater. And those who listened to him, those who received his word, and his baptism would be even greater as they come into the kingdom of heaven. Now all of this was very good news to the ordinary people. Verse 29, and when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors, and keep in mind how bad the tax collectors were. You have to write in that your very worst, most disreputable profession, something that is inherently sinful and that uh, whom everyone regards as exceedingly sinful. And when the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. And of course, there wasn't just those. There were others. There were the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the time. And they had also heard John the Baptist. You remember that in the earlier chapters of Luke. They had also heard John the Baptist, but they didn't receive him. They didn't receive his baptism. They found fault with John, even though he came particularly as his witness. He was the greatest prophet that had ever been. What did they do with that very clear witness? What did they do with that, that clear depiction of the truth? They rejected it. And you can almost, and what are they doing now, by the way? Having rejected John the Baptist, they are now in the process of rejecting Jesus Christ, the greater one, and his greater message, and the salvation that he offered through grace and in faith. They were finding fault with everything that God sent them. And you can almost feel the frustration in Jesus' voice as he tells them what they are like. This is his description of them. To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, We played the flute for you, you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not weep. And here's what he means. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. He lived his life of extreme asceticism in the desert. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, Christ, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You have to say, what do they want? Nothing is good enough for them. It doesn't matter what God sends to them, what sort of messenger that he sends. They reject the message. And in fact, in verse 30, what he says, they reject the will of God for themselves. Now, we pray that the Lord would keep us from such rejection, that we would not be like these Pharisees. But among the slanders that they hurled at Jesus, there's one that's become very famous. Maybe you know which one that I mean. They called him a friend of sinners. And the question is, was he the friend of sinners? Taken in the sense that they meant it, actually no. Jesus is no friend of sinners in their ongoing state of unrepentant sin. But just like in the way someone else, in this case Caiaphas, the high priest, had said, even when he was plotting murder against the Lord Jesus Christ, he said something that was very true. When he said, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. That's very true. And likewise... When these people, even in, when they were meaning to insult Jesus, and when they were slandering him, he, they said something that was very true. Because Jesus Christ certainly is a friend of sinners. In fact, I would say he's the only true friend of sinners. The only one who is able to do something for them by which they, with, without it they cannot live. 
He is the true friend who is going to rescue them from their sin. And that's the title of our sermon tonight, The Sinner's True Friend. That's who Jesus Christ is. And just two, two points with that main idea. The first is that Jesus is no friend to sinners in their sin. But the second is that Jesus is the true friend who rescues sinners from their sin. Jesus is no friend of sinners in their sin. Just recall what they were saying about Jesus. John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, you have to understand that there are two sets of things being said. There are the facts, the bare facts of the matters, matter, and then there's the spin, the negative spin that the Pharisees were putting on it. So in the case of John the Baptist, the facts are these. John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. That's true. The spin is, and you say he has a demon. What they're saying is the only way someone could survive out there in the desert, not eating normal food, but locusts and wild honey or whatever else could be fine, is that he has a demon. There must be some sort of demonic influence that would allow him to do that. That was false. And now in the case of Jesus, the facts are the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. That's very true. He, relative to John, had a very normal lifestyle. And the spin, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber. And that was false. That's not true at all. Jesus did eat, but he was not a glutton. He did drink, but he was not a wine-bibber or a drunkard. These things are slanders. And so what about then the claim that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Is that true? Well, that depends on what you mean by friend. If you mean what I think that the Pharisees meant by that word friend, uh, someone who associated with godless people just to hang out with them and to share in their wicked lifestyle and to wink in their sin, wink at their sin and further embolden them in their sin, then of course the answer is no. Of course he wasn't that kind of, quote, friend. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You are pure eyes and to behold evil, and you cannot look on wickedness. Jesus Christ is the holy Son of God. He could never be that kind of person. But then again, that kind of friend is not really a friend anyways. Because what kind of friend knows something that is going to bring you into hell but does nothing about it at all? And even encourages you to keep doing it, emboldens you to stay in that that sin. Certainly not the one who is the very definition of holy love, and that is who Jesus is. He was not that kind of friend. He was no companion of wicked men in their sin. John 2.13 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found them in the temple who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. He was not winking at their sin. And that is nothing compared to what he's going to do when he comes again the second time to judge unrepentant sinners. He will be their judge. And he will condemn them rightly and justly so to hell. Now in the larger picture though, we need to understand something else. So we couldn't possibly think he's someone who's just a companion to sinners, imbibing in their sin, winking at their sin. That is not the case. But on the other hand, we need to know this. We need to understand what Christ came in the world to do. This morning uh, we were 
in an earlier part of, of Luke, and we were thinking about how people were not always clear about Jesus' mission. They sometimes had some misunderstandings about what Christ came to do. And, and when he didn't do what they wanted him to do, then they were uh, offended by it. Well, I think that we need to think about this as well. If we could zoom out even further uh, beyond the fact that he came into this world to suffer and to die on the cross for our sins, and then to rise again the third day, you have to even ask beyond that, why did he come for that? What was the point of that? Well, one way to understand it is what it says in 1 John 3.8. It says this, For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. For this reason Christ came into the world, and for this reason he was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And you think how that goes, that Satan came into the perfectly good world that God had made, and he led men into sin and misery by deceiving Eve, and Adam fell as well. Jesus came into the fallen world, and he came to put an end to sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And when we think, therefore, what what Christ is, he is a sworn enemy of Satan, the sworn enemy of sin, and all those who cling to sin. See, he's no friend of sinners who remain in their sin. And secondly, we need to see something else. Jesus absolutely is a true friend to rescue sinners from their sin. Now, Jesus, what can we say? Can we say that he is a friend of sinners? I think that we can. I want us to see, by the way, before we say that, that sinners don't, don't deserve to have Jesus as their friend. Sinners only deserve to have Jesus as their judge. And that's what's so truly amazing that Jesus Christ actually was a friend to repentant sinners. You know, for instance, when he says you're a friend of sinners and tax collectors, who are they talking about? Among other things, they're talking about Matthew, one of his own disciples whom Jesus has chosen. And and they know this is no accident. He could have chosen anybody he wanted to be his disciple. Instead, he goes out of his way to pick someone who is notorious as a great sinner to be one of his disciples. But notice, notice that Matthew was no longer in that line of work. He was a former tax collector. And in the very, this very chapter, the next thing that happens is how Jesus is associating with a woman they call a sinner. And again, it's a stumbling block. It is a cause of offense. Does he not know who this woman is? She's a sinner. A prostitute. Well, the fact is, she's not exactly there engaging in sin, is she? She is a repentant sinner who has come to Christ to turn away from her sin, to be rescued from it. And that's why Luke 5.32, if you remember, said that I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what he's doing. He's not there to imbibe with them in their sin. He is there to call them out of their sin and to bring them to repentance. And so, of course, he really is a friend of sinners. And he's not just a mere friend of sinners. I'm trying to think of an illustration here, but imagine you have some bad habit, let's say smoking. And everyone knows smoking kills. It says so in the packets, right? Smoking kills, right? And you have a friend who is encouraging you to stop doing it. Now, he can be your real friend, and he's trying to do something to help you, and saying, stop doing it. But it doesn't mean it's going to work. It doesn't mean your friend is actually going to do that. It doesn't mean that your friend is actually going to be able to rescue that from. And much more so, if you actually have lung cancer, stage four, he's not going to be able to save your life. 
And what's more, if you die from that lung cancer, he's not going to be able to bring you back from life, from death. Jesus Christ is the true sinner, uh, the true friend of sinners who actually is able to do all those things. And it's not just talking about cancer. He's talking about the cancer of sin that goes well beyond these things, that is going to send you to hell eternally if somebody doesn't do something about it. He not only is going to counsel you to turn away from these things, he can undo all that damage. He can save you from the wrath of God. He can make you perfectly clean and wipe away all the tumors and all the damage that this has done. That's, of course, what Christ does is he saves us from sin. He's more than a mere friend of sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to actually save them. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. That's speaking of Paul. Now, you know, the funny thing is, Paul, of course, was going around trying to kill uh, Christians. He was a persecutor of the church. He was the worst of them. That's why he says, I was the chief of sinners. And he doesn't just say, I was a one-off. He happened to save me, but that's the last time it's going to happen. From now on, the only people that he's going to save are those who have their acts together. He goes on to say this, For this reason I obtained mercy that in me... Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him. A pattern. He's a pattern. He's the example. He's the, the way that thing, things are going to work. Someone whom you could rightly call the chief of sinners. That's the one that Jesus came to save. And so it has been ever since then. That's the pattern. And what way was Jesus Christ a friend to the chief of sinners in Paul? What way did it, was, he, was it that, that Jesus kind of uh, was a companion to him and, and, and put his arm around him as he went on persecuting the church? No, here's, here's how it was back in Acts chapter 9. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any of those who were of the way, that means Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the last thing that he wanted to hear was the answer. The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he, trembling and astonished, as you would be, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it will be told what you must do. And you know what happened thereafter. This one who used to persecute the Christian church, he went around preaching it. This one who used to hate Jesus Christ, he preached Jesus Christ, he served Jesus Christ, and in the end he died for that faith. He himself was a subject of this persecution. He was not remaining in the situation that he was because Jesus Christ came to save sinners, the chief of sinners, and to bring him from his sin. And he really, really was saved from sin. Now, when we think of these things, I want us to say, I want us, well, what do I want us to do about this? Well, I want you to call upon the only true friend of sinners. It's amazing to me how much that sinners want friends. 
And sometimes when I think about sinners, because I, I, I can think about myself, you see, it wasn't so long ago. And when I say a sinner, I don't mean someone that I no longer sin at all. Of course, that's not the case. No one in this, this world is perfectly sinless. What I mean to say is those who are not Christians, those who haven't put their faith in Christ, those who haven't repented from their sins and turned to Him in faith, when I think about how I used to go around and wanting to gather friends and so forth, why did I want them to be just like me? Why did I want them to be doing the same things that I did? Because I wanted to be affirmed in the things that I was doing. I knew that they were wrong. I just wanted someone to, to, to pat me on the back and to say it was right, to say it was okay. And that the, what, the, whatever wickedness that I was doing was fine and they approved of it. And of course, one of the ways to test this, by the way, to see if those kinds of friends are really your friends, is let's say that you did come to Christ. Let's say you did become a Christian and turn away from that lifestyle. What happens to those kind of friends? Again, I can speak from experience. They go away. Because now, instead of joining with you in your, your running right, now instead of running with you in your wickedness, you're, they're exposed. They realize that you've not, you're now choosing something else. There's a difference there. And they feel convicted by it. Now, if they were truly your friend and they loved you as a brother, they would stick with you no matter what, even if it was uncomfortable. But those kind of friends actually tend to go away. Now, sometimes we pray that the Lord actually saves them as well. We know, thankfully, that that often happens. But sometimes what we see is that people are seeking friends only to be reinforced in their sin. But that's not the way that we come to the true friend of sinners. This is what, by the way, and let me say that he is a friend in that sense too. We can come to him. He, he's not set himself apart. There's no velvet rope between us and Christ. We can come to him. Luke 11.5 says this, And he said to him, Which of you shall have a friend? This is, he's comparing himself to this friend now. Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give as many as he needs. Now here's a comparison. That's the situation with, with ordinary people. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. And Jesus is giving us an open invitation to treat him as a friend. If we go to a friend late at night and we need some bread, we need something to eat, the friend will eventually do it. We come to Jesus Christ and we say, Lord, we want salvation. Lord, we want to come to you to put our faith in you and to turn away from sin and to be saved from the wrath to come. And he's not going to turn us away. He says, everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. What a beautiful, wonderful thing this friend is to us. And you know, I would say also, if we want to be a friend, we call upon Christ as the friend, and if we want to be a friend of God, do you know what that requires? Believing, that's all. It was said of, of Abraham in James 2.23, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Abraham was no perfect saint. I sometimes find it 
ironic, you know, when we, we refer to these heroes of the faith and we see just how weak they are and just how sinful they are. There's nothing special about any of them, certainly not about Abraham. He, he fell many times in various ways. But he was a friend of God. Do you know why? Because he believed. He believed the word of promise that was given to him, the word of promise that was given when he called him out of, out of the land that he came from and said, I'm going to be a God to you and to your descendants, and I'm going to bring you into a land. Jesus Christ says, I'm going to call you out of the world, and I'm going to be a God to you. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to cleanse you from your sin, and I'm going to bring you into an everlasting kingdom. And all you have to do is believe it. Take God at his word. And you become a friend of God and of Christ. And by the way, of course, we understand that this comes with an obligation to do what Christ has said. John fifteen thirteen says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now that's his situation. And what he says then is, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And we know that they don't do it perfectly, but the idea is that if you're Jesus' friends, you're going to do because you know he knows what is best. You know you kn- that he is the Lord. You know that you call him Lord. And therefore, it's a fairly simple matter that you do what he says. You're a friend of God because you believe and you act as his friend by doing the things that he asks us to do in his word. It's wonderfully simple. Now, I want to say that baptism is a sign and seal of that friendship. This wonderful friendship that we have with the the friend of sinners, we see it in baptism. We've already made mention to the baptism of John. And and what we have is a contrast, actually, between the sinners and the tax collectors and the ordinary people and the Pharisees. And you know what the main difference is? The the difference that even if you were to take a a Google Earth-style picture from, from high up and to see the people that were there, you know what you could physically tell? Some of those ordinary people who believed, some of those sinners and tax collectors, were actually baptized by John. They submitted to baptism. Whereas the Pharisees and the lawyers refused to be baptized. It is a picture, of course, of this friendship, of this uniting with Christ in faith. Now it is a picture of many other things. It is a picture of being washed. We said he's no friend to sinners in their unrepentant sin to remain in that. It is a wonderful picture of being washed, of the water washing away the filth of sin. It is a picture of being filled instead with the Holy Spirit. It is a picture of all these things. It is something that God gives us as a token, as something that seals the friendship, the sign of the covenant of faith. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we how thankful we are for your word. Grateful, Lord, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And Lord, truly we know that there are none here who have not sinned against you. But rather, Lord, we stand rightly condemned as we are in ourselves. And we would be in a terrible state had you never sinned anyone. And rather, Lord, we know that all too often the friends that we seek out and the friends that we have are only those who encourage us in further sin rather than seeking to do that which is good and right for us. We're thankful that Christ is our true friend, that Christ came to call us away from these things 
and to give us eternal life. In fact, he was willing to lay down his life in order to give it to us. We are thankful for such a Savior, thankful for such a friend. And Lord, how we pray that we would truly be his friend in receiving what he has done in faith, putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be his friend forever. And Lord, we pray that you would bless also to us the sacrament of baptism. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.